welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me this week. It's episode 28, and my guest this week is Paul Felrad, who's an author, a sailor, and a CPTSD survivor. He's written a book, and it's called The Struggle Continues. It's co-written with his daughter, Natasha, and it's described as an intimate and up-close look at how childhood abuse led to a spiral of self-destruction until the reunion of father and daughter starts a journey on the long, hard road back to health. So you can tell by that little snippet that um, that this is a deep dive, right? <laughs> this is a uh, we really get into it on this episode, and we get into it in a really good way. It was a lot of fun. Paul was great to chat to, and just before I kind of get onto the episode, I'd like to tell you a bit about his book because Paul was good enough to send me a copy, and I really enjoyed it. I was really, really taken by it. Um, firstly, it's a hell of a story. It really, really is. Paul's life has been, um, yeah, well, it's just, it's busy. You know, there's a lot going on. And um, it's really, it's a compelling read. You know, I found myself really rooting for Paul, really rooting for Natasha in their story. And, um, you know, I really was just hoping that things were going to turn out okay for them, you know. And, um, yeah, it was a real page turner in that respect. Um, I found it very inspiring. Um, it was funny in places as well, which is, um, you know, might think's unusual given the subject matter. But, you know, I've talked on the podcast before about how there's space for for humour in, you know, in the mental health conversation. And in some, t- in some respects, I think that it's important, you know, if used in the right way. And, um, yeah, you can tell by the way it's written that Paul feels that way too. It's really good. I was a little bit nervous about reading it because of the heaviness of the subject matter. And like a lot of people, I have to kind of uh, keep an eye on what I consume. You know, if stuff's a bit too heavy, then um, it can have a negative effect on me. You know, it can kind of uh, make me feel bad for a couple of days. Um, but the way it's written really stops that from happening. And it's something that me and Paul talk about in the episode. You know, it's purposely written to kind of protect the reader. Um, so just when you think that you know, it's starting to get a bit intense, then the story will go somewhere else and they'll tell a a different part of the tale. And then it comes back and weaves in a bit more and then it gives you a little break and gets you thinking about something else. And both sides of the coin are so compelling that when you're reading one, there is half of you wanting to get back to know what, (laughs) to know what happens. And, um, yeah, it's just brilliant. It's really, really clever. The, having the two writers, Paul and his and his daughter Natasha, that's fantastic because it's like a almost like a shared dialogue. And Paul will write some, and then uh, Natasha will take over. And sometimes they're asking each other's questions. Sometimes they're like passing the writing baton, if you will. Um, and they quite often break the fourth wall, you know, and just acknowledge the fact that they're talking to each other. And it's a book, and um, yeah, it's really, really good. It's very, very clever. 
really really interesting and um yeah i can put it down it's a real page turner which is a weird thing to say uh, you know a book about ptsd and um childhood trauma to say like i really enjoyed it and couldn't put it down and that's just a credit to the writing you know it's fantastic and um yeah so as soon as i started reading it within a few pages i was like i can't wait to talk to paul on the podcast this is going to be great and he didn't disappoint at all he's a lovely lovely man um he's like completely honest you know, he does not shy away from anything. I really think I could have asked him anything and he would have answered me. And um, he's really articulate. He's really, you know, he spent time studying this stuff and um, it really, really shows. And his story is really inspiring. And, but the thing, the thing that I found most inspiring was when Paul talked about his reasons for telling his story you know, and the reasons for writing his book and his reasons for the work that he's done since in the mental health space. He's so passionate about helping other people. And um, yeah, I found that really inspiring. And it was really great to hear him talk about, you know, life after the book and what he's got planned and what he's going to do. Yeah, it's really, really good. It's a deep dive. We really get into it. Um, Yeah, we chat about uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder we talk a lot about therapy which is uh you know the process paul used to kind of you know rebuild himself rebuild his life we talk about mental health we talk about all different sorts of things and yeah it's a fantastic conversation i'm really excited i can't wait for you to hear it so give it a listen and um yeah help you know buy his book help him out man because it deserves to be out there it deserves to be read and um he's really trying to help as many as people as possible um if you'd like to connect with him on social media it's at alutar continuar um, on Instagram and on Twitter. His website is thestrugglecontinues.co.uk. He writes a lot. He's also done some mental health-related blogs, and you can catch them at joeplum.org or thebookofman.com. If you want to connect with me um, on all social media, at Proper Mental Podcast, or via my website, which is propermentalpodcast.com. If you'd like to subscribe, that would be brilliant. If you would like to... Leave me a five-star review and some kind words, words. That would be brilliant if you'd like to, you know, tag and share and like and help me spread the word. That would be brilliant too. Um, I suppose as a bit of a side note, uh, Paul is a liveaboard sailor, so he lives on a boat. So we recorded this on his boat, which is pretty cool. And we did have a couple of technical issues on the day. Um, I think I've tidied them up, so I don't think you'll notice. Um, and there's certainly nothing that's going to affect the listening experience. I wouldn't it out otherwise um so it's a great conversation and i would love to know what you think about it i think that's enough for me that's everything you need to know um so here we go this is episode 28 of the proper mental podcast with paul felrad thank you for listening enjoy So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast, and I'm joined today by Paul Felrad. How are you, mate? I'm not not doing too badly. Um, not doing too badly. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, what is the answer now in this pandemic world? People go, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. 
What, what, yeah. What's the appropriate one now? <laughs> no, it's true. And you, you don't want to appear too fine, right? You don't want to be having too much of a good time during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, so I've got, I've got to ask, mate, whereabouts are you at the moment? Are you on your boat? Can I see that you're on your, your boat? I yeah. am on the boat. You can normally spot a porthole just up there. All oh, right. Yeah, yeah, I see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm actually in the middle of Loch Cragnish, uh, near the town of Ardfown on the western coast. Wow. And are you are you predominantly based on the water these days, Paul? Is um, well, literally, um, you know, my boat's always been home for about the past five years. Um, but normally I'd have, you know, I'd have an apartment in London or wherever my contract work tended to, to lead me. End of February 2020, I thought to myself, oh, it's, work's been really intense. I need some time on my boat. So I disappeared off and I anchored in the middle of a river in Cornwall. Thing is... A month later, the pandemic hits and we're all in lockdown. (laughs) So I spent an extra month in isolation, entirely (laughs) (laughs) self-inflicted. And then suddenly that whole, I need to get away from the world instinct that I so frequently had. um, Yeah, suddenly I was living in the middle of it. And that was, got to be honest with you. A bit too too much isolation, right? That's good. I was trying to uh, think of a a good place to to kick us off paul um i've read your book which um we have chatted about which i very much enjoyed and uh, you know i'm sure we'll get into get more into that and into the process and stuff like that but i thought just to kind yeah, of sure. kick us off could you in your words just explain to us what um ptsd and cptsd is because i think there's there's a lot of misunderstanding there and there's a lot of stigma around what it is we tend to kind of associate with only one area like if you did a survey people would say it was war veterans right but that's not yeah. that's not quite the case oh so um i mean just to start with the fact that according to all of the studies um between three and four percent of the uk population will have ptsd in one severity or another at some point during their lifetime wow now, now if you want to compare that uh, the uk army statistics four percent of serving armed forces could eventually could suffer with some form of PTSD that raises to 6% with frontline troops who have seen, um, you know, have ended up in a war situation. So we're not talking about a fundamentally massive distance, uh, distance between those two. Yeah. Now PTSD, and I should say that for of those three to 4% of the UK population that, you know, about half will recover from it um, potentially with no treatment. Um, the system will sort of reset itself but it's the others that then get into the longer term needs of needing. You have one traumatic event or period in your life. Uh, that could be a car crash, an assault, as you say, somebody in a military situation, and basically any event that you find personally traumatic. And certain of our defenses, our instincts are overwhelmed. So the very primitive aspect of your brain, which does, you know, fight or flight, that becomes overwhelmed. And those people will then suffer with a range of symptoms that we'll have seen with, you know, with flashbacks, some degree of problems with emotional regulation, anxiety, depression, and so on. Complex PTSD um, gets much more severe. Now we're dealing with the actual definition is that um, multiple traumatic events or periods throughout your life layered frequently on top of uh, childhood abuse, neglect, or trauma. 
Um, normally, the diagnostic criteria is also that the trauma is related some way to somebody that you have a personal relationship with. So that is a partner, a, a caregiver, parent, uh, teacher, something along those lines. And it is that difference of repeated trauma. So rather than just that, and the other key definition is, if you imagine if you had, a, say, a terrible car crash, we all hope you didn't, but you see you had a terrible car crash and you say 21. There's an image of you that you carry with you pre the event, what you call a pre-trauma identity. And that's um, an anchor, if you will, of a time when you were okay. And frequently the process is how do I recover essentially from that psychological injury to get back as closely as possible to the person I was. With complex PTSD, there frequently is no pre-trauma identity because it started so young. This has altered how you've developed it. It's altered how your brain is structured. Literally, if you MRI'd me, you would see differences in the structure of my brain as I have complex PTSD. So in that circumstance, there isn't a you to go back to. There isn't, a, you've always been like this. It's raised you. It's taught you how to think, how to love, how your emotions work, how you react with the world. So now you've now got a much more complicated problem, hence the name. Where do you go back to? How do you rebuild? How do you construct something constructive out of the other end? You're essentially having to, as one my therapist said to me, um, quite directly, because he needed to, we will tear down the foundations of your life and build you up from scratch. Wow. Start all over again, right? Yeah. Well, you think, you know how you've got built in attitudes, you know, things that you don't exactly know where they've come from. You know, it goes all the way back through your earliest years. And these are just the way that you think, the way that you are as a person. In my case, how, how do you trust those things? What have they come from? What, what was it that led you to think or act in this particular way? So you essentially have to go through a process of challenging everything about yourself, everything that you believe, everything you think, any of those built-in attitudes about yourself, the world around you, what's good, what's bad, what's dangerous, what's safe, all comes along. I suppose the other commonality to all PTSD, you might think about it as a faulty fire alarm. And because there's been a fire in the past, it will keep going off at random times. You know, on a misty day, somebody coughs and there's a little bit of smoke and the thing goes, oh, fire. And you are suddenly launched into it. With complex PTSD, you will live with certain elements of this forever. And, and you just have to learn to adapt to them. So you live with that faulty alarm system that sometimes will trigger in a scenario where, you know, it's almost, um, there's no solid grounds behind it, but somewhere in there, it's triggering something and you have to take those things one apart piece by piece by piece. Wow. That's, um, even the idea of that is a, an intimidating process, right? That's like, that's, it's almost yeah. too much to comprehend if that makes sense, because once yeah. that ground underneath starts getting a bit, um, you know, once you start unpicking these things apart, then you kind of it's got to be very challenging to realize, I suppose, what's, what's real and what's not, right? What, well, what are you picking apart? Um, when I first got the diagnosis, I, um, I went and looked it up because I'd never heard of it. You know, all I knew about PTSD is what most people will know. You know, I've seen Rambo First Blood. You know? <laughs> That's basically it. <laughs> yeah. 
So again, you know, it's that thing. I'm not a soldier. I've not been in war. What do you mean I've got PTSD? And then there's this complex thing you're trying to wrap your head around. So I go onto a website. It's actually a really good one called Out to the Fog. And it gives you really clear, concise descriptions of it. And I looked at the symptoms. And as I read through it, I suddenly thought to myself, hang on, this is my personality profile. They're not describing an illness. They're describing me. If I went along to it and then I go, I actually like some of these things about myself. What the hell does that say? And of course, then there's a follow on thought. So hang on, that's the illness. What if you take that away? Who am I then? What's left? Yeah, exactly. And it really was that situation where um, what you have to end up believing this idea that we create ourselves, that we become the person we drive ourselves to be. And yeah, so totally overwhelming. And I've got a second example. I, yeah, so I was at my friend's house where I'd gone to stay for a bit because I was unstable, Yeah, early days of treatment. And his daughter was experiencing some bullying at school and talking to her parents about it at the dinner table. And I had this thought pop into my head, just completely instinctive, where I would have said, you know, that's because the bully feels insecure themselves and they're inflicting those feelings upon you and I was about to say it and all of a sudden it was hang on where's that idea come from what's driven that thought can I trust that thought is that based on uh, a good thing or a bad thing am I okay with that and in that moment I thought it really hit me I'm really I'm going to have to challenge every thought I come up with is that really what I'm up against and unfortunately, that's what someone with complex PTSD, people who have suffered repeated childhood trauma, have to then deal with. That is why it takes so long. It's why it takes so much uh, work over an extended period of years. And in the end, you learn it becomes a lifelong piece of work. Mm. And it's something you will always end up doing to some degree. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I found really, really fascinating, and it was... It was something I read in your book. I think it was in one of Natasha's chapters. And it was one of those, um, it was just a, like a line in it. And it was one of those things when you say, when you know when something's so simple, you think, why have I never thought of this before? That makes so much sense. <laughs> but she says something like that your, uh, your complex PTSD didn't start with diagnosis, right? Yeah. So I, I think the fascinating thing about um, your story as well is that you were incredibly high functioning before you got any help for a long time time right so yours is is, it comes from childhood trauma but after childhood you had a big chunk of adulthood without Mm -hmm. any help um and is that kind of um well i suppose you have to look back and analyze your um you know behaviors during that time and, and what was going on and how does that kind of work paul Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to think about every friendship that you had, the relationships. I mean, I was married twice, divorced twice. Um, You think about the work that you do, why you got into that line of work. You know, I was a freelance um, uh, IT consultant. And I realized relatively recently that that was a defense mechanism. It stopped me connecting to people. It stopped me everybody at a distance it was a safe way to operate because you never had to build up trust if that's right. what makes yeah. sense yeah so it kind of keeps you that like one degree of separation behind the screen almost yeah and it's an unfortunate truth that 
you know, the odds are against you even getting through it. So I was a survivor. I, I got out the other end. Not that I didn't do massive damage to myself en route. That's the thing. The trauma doesn't end at childhood. You, I learned that you become your own abuser. The, the self-destructive nature of your own life keeps it going because that's what you feel you deserve. Yeah. And even my work and being high-functioning and successful in my work, I was hurling myself into the worst work situations. My, my reputation was turn up at companies and uh, sort them from, you know, the business is about to go under. People are, you know, mass, un um, mass unemployment, you know, mass firings, all this sort of thing. And I was just pushing myself. You know, I've had people have heart attacks, a couple of suicide attempts at work. The worst work scenarios you could find, I sought them out. So even that was very self-destructive. I put myself, I'd pass out in the back of taxis from exhaustion because of how hard I would push myself. So it's weird that it, in a strange way, it forced me from the outside to seem successful because of what I was doing. But I was, you know, where other people would have burnt themselves out, I kept going. Yeah, yeah. Did you... um? Did you know that you weren't well? Did you know that you were real at this stage, Paul? Did you just think that that was you? I thought that was me. The, you have to remember, I, um, we have a chapter in the book called The A Word, right? Which, you know, I'm being a little bit clever there and obviously saying you don't actually say abuse or abused. You just say the A Word. And I didn't say that word about myself until my late 30s. They, I'd buried it all away, pushed it into, minimized it. That was what happened to other people. You know, that was just my life. It was, you know, how dare I do that? Um, you know, make myself out to be a victim. I'm not somebody who's really been through hard things. And it was only then that I began to realize. But even, even at that point, it was too big to take on. I don't think I really saw myself as being ill until, I suppose, until about the early 2000s. But even then, I would not have classed myself as somebody, uh, anybody else who had been through something, I always assumed it, would, it was worse for them. Right, I always yeah. minimized it about myself. Yeah. And I think to some extent, that's quite a human quality, right? So obviously, we're talking about um, a very extreme mental illness. But um, with any sort of mental illness, I think a lot of people do that, right? A lot of people say, oh, you know, oh, I'm not going to ask for help because I don't want to you know, take up a Samaritan's phone line because there might be someone who needs it more than me. You know, I think that is, I think that's to some extent, that is a quite a human behavior really to kind of. Um... I would, yeah, I'd say on the full scope. I mean, if you talk to other people who've um, experienced PTSD, their first reaction is always something like, but I'm not a soldier. You know, I wasn't raped or I wasn't this, I wasn't that. Something to separate themselves out and go, oh, no, no, I can't take on that. That minimizes what they've been through. I, I'm, I, what I've been through is not worthy of that label. People with depression or anxiety, it will be, oh, no, it's just that thing that happened. It's just that last project, that last job, that last relationship. And we'll keep pushing it away. And that's, that's when we take stigma and, and apply it to ourselves hmm. and then start... Um, that can't be us. Of course it couldn't be. That, that's other people. That's things you see on the TV. That's, that's stuff that happens in films. That, that's not me. And that's why we, 
Um, that's why I've started doing workshops with um, with companies about mental health to try and get them to understand that they are flirting with the edges of mental illness in terms of anxiety, in terms of depression and stress as a norm. It's become normalized. You go in, you do that hard job, that hard project. And, you know, you get your little badges. You've been in the trenches for a bit and we all move on rather than seeing that actually what they're doing is I mean, this is why when you look at the numbers now, so many of us are hitting the criteria for depression or for anxiety. This is not a norm. And everything that I've been trying to do is trying to get the idea that mental well-being is something that applies to every single one of us. And that mental illness is just one little aspect of all of that. And actually, you can be suffering with uh, stress, uh, anxiety or depression with no diagnosable mental illness just because of how you're living your life and the fact that you're not looking after yourself. Mm. And, yeah, we, you know, we should think that it, it's, it's like we're, you know, nobody, there's no stigma in having a cold. There's no stigma in catching the flu. It should be thought about in the same way. If you don't look after yourself, if you don't look after your diet, if you don't look after your work, if you don't look after your sleep, and then these are the things that will happen and they'll happen to all of us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like you say, we know exactly what we should and shouldn't do to our bodies to prevent, um, you know, a cold turning into something more, turning into something more, turning into, you know, a heart attack or, you know, because we continue to let ourselves run mm. down and down and down. So, yeah, the same approach to our mental state. But it's so interesting what you say about normalizing it as well, because if someone is in that position in the workplace, chances are they're looking around at everyone else in the same position. So no one notices. No one's going to be the one who puts their hand up and says, we're struggling. I'm struggling. This isn't yeah. right. Who can I go to? Because everyone's the, we're all, everyone's like hiding behind the same, the same thing almost, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, absolutely. And, you know, the, obviously, as you said, my example's extreme. And when I wrote the book, it's like, I can't make this just about that because what's the purpose here? What am I trying to do? People who've been through this know they have. And what? No one else is going to be able to relate to it. So I was always trying to relate it back to something that bits that we all experience and try and make it in that way. And when I go and talk to, to companies about this, that's what you're trying to do. You go, yeah, mental illness, that's one dimension. Now let's talk about well-being. Now let's look at the characteristics of well-being suffering. You know, there's red, that, that's ill, that's struggling, that's, that's just surviving. And you will flirt between the amber phases all the time that this is just the world we live in and we need to look after each other and ourselves an awful lot better to understand that we're all in that scope and yeah it, it, attitudes are changing but i still know that we've well you know we've got a long way to go yeah definitely yeah i completely agree i really love what you said about using the stigma on ourselves i'd never thought of it like that but that's true you know we're kind of um yeah, I suppose that gets in the way, doesn't it, of people asking for help and people being the change, so to speak, if you can't even, um, yeah, realise it in yourself. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. That's um, that's going to give me uh, something to go away and, and chew on already, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we kind of, we know, well, I know from the book that um, like 2013 was when you, um, that's when you started getting the getting the help and i believe yeah. you described that as your descent into madness have i got the right the right phrase yes there? No, you know, people said to me um is that okay i what i said said that I, I enjoyed your book or even that i laughed and i said well yeah i joke about my own mental illness um that's how i think about life 
And yeah, I then, when I was talking about a point where I did, you know, totally lose it, totally lose control, was unable to function. I call it my descent into madness. And it's such a blurry time that I even had to sit down with my best friend and get him to talk to me about how I was at that particular moment, because I couldn't get through the next minute, let alone the next day. Um, I, it's almost like a, um, you know, the pressure built up behind the dam. And then at one moment it cracked open and everything came tumbling down. And I went from high functioning on a government contract, doing very high level work to suddenly not even being able to get through um, a day, not, not even knowing I, I couldn't talk. I couldn't think I couldn't sleep. Everything shut down. Wow. And was it kind of, um, is that when the therapeutic process started for you, Paul, or did you have any time in between? Did you do meds and all that sort of stuff? Did that, did that I mean, it, it was only, um, when I started the process. So I, um, I, I laid it out in the prologue. I, it was a moment when I basically looked death straight in the face. I had two options, climb or dive. And there was, there was, I didn't know which way I was going to go. And I had a moment of um, clarity that actually was dr driven out of absolute rage at the world. That's why I fought back. Not for any good reason. It'd be nice if it was, but it wasn't. I just basically got angry at the universe and decided, you know, screw you. And I went to find myself a therapist. And I was one of the most fortunate people going because I hit that therapist first time out. And, you know, people should understand picking a therapist. It's not like going and getting somebody to sort the tires out on your car. It has to fit you. You have to fit them as a very personal relationship that has to build there's trust that has to be created and trust for somebody with ptsd is actually at the core of the problem and yet i found through uh, the amazing people at brighton therapy center this amazing therapist who was a trauma specialist he'd worked with torture victims and it was him who said to me are you willing to consider medication so i then went to see a psychiatrist and together with, I saw the two of them um, for about the first year and then the, just the therapist going on. And it was, yeah, that, that was the first time I'd, I, I loathe pills. The idea of changing something, I, you know, I live and breathe and work through my brain. And the idea of doing anything that messed with it was horrifying to me. But through that relationship, through that trust, I got onto antidepressants. I had sleep medication so that I could begin to stabilize because you have to be stable for the treatment to start to work yeah sure yeah i get that completely i kind of um i take meds now and i'm quite open about it but for a long time i didn't and that was one of the things i was so um i wanted to make sure i could trust my own thoughts and i needed mm. to be needed to be sure i was making decisions based on you know based on me rather than making them based on the meds and that put me off for a, a long long time that was something I uh it turns out I had the opposite effect it actually put me in a right place where I could you know really knuckle down into what I wanted to do but um and it's very interesting that you mentioned about the finding the therapist because I think that that's where a lot of people stop the process too soon isn't it and therapy is not for everyone of course but um a lot of people maybe have a couple of goes don't they and never quite have that connection um, yeah 
Mm-hmm. It's why um, it's why I have so many problems with um, the NHS system as it stands at the minute. So the nice care path pathways, such as the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, they're the ones who decide if you turn up, get this diagnostic criteria, you go down this care pathway. And they dole out for somebody who uh, looks like they've got PTSD, treatments in six to ten as a, as a chunk. I was in therapy for three and a half years. The idea that somebody would swap that person out because you've got no guarantee you'll see the same person, that that makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. You have to build up trust with that person. And, you know, as was laid out in the intro, because my therapist actually wrote the foreword to the book, has he laid out there at its core, your ability to trust anything yourself your own thoughts your emotions the people around you the world it's all shattered and that needs to be constructed and that starts with you learning to trust the therapist and building trust there so if somebody has ptsd and everybody knows this is going to take months if not years where does the sense say and only promising the person six sessions that's yeah um it's just not in reality so i was fortunate enough to because of my work be able to go private um and worked with brighton therapy center who's a charity and do all they can to help the people that come in without them i very much doubt i would be here today Mm. and yeah because you really doubled down on it as well because was it two or three times a week for those three and a half years yeah i mean the second that the guy um understood that this how severe it was and the state I was in for the first year and a half, I was seeing him twice a week. Yeah. Well, yeah, once wouldn't have been enough. Yeah. And during that process, did you, it must have been um, a really disturbing process, right? Because it's not, uh, recovery isn't linear for a start. And sometimes when things are getting deconstructed, sometimes things have to almost seem a little bit worse before they start to seem a little bit better it's not like going to the gym right where you're gradually watching your uh your waistline get smaller and smaller as the weeks go by it's um yeah, yeah. It's, it's complicated so that three years in itself must have been uh you know quite i suppose torturous in a positive way at the end you know it's um yeah i mean you have to sort of try and wrap your head around it in some way like um you know this is like surgery it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt not only in the moment, but everything else after it. It's like getting a, you know, an infection out of a wound. It's going to be deeply unpleasant, but it's something that you have to do. And it's layered, particularly in, in a complex PTSD case. As you peel something away, a whole raft of new problems arise. Because, and you've got to, as you, you pointed out at the beginning, I'd had a successful career. I was high functioning. That's because I built layers and layers and layers of defenses up, shields and armor that got me through the world that actually delayed any opportunity for me to do anything about it. Because I, as my, my therapist said to me, he said, you put that armor in place for good reasons. Now you've got to take it away and you've got to still trust that that strength is there, even though that it feels it's all gone. And we're going to have to go in first before we can start strengthening you up again. We're going to have to do like surgery. We're going to have to do damage first before we can actually get at it. So you're doing this constant cycle 
of up and down and up and down and you know, feeling like you're getting somewhere and then it feels so you know uh, two steps forward one step back became became my mantra and it, i had to see that as progress even when it didn't feel like it yeah sure and um, can that trigger other aspects of mental health mental illness like um you know do you experience depression in that time and things like that because it sounds like the sort of process that i always think a lot of uh, around depression is if you get emotionally wiped out that's a fantastic time for depression to kind of creep in so was there other aspects as well to consider that were um, attached to that Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, initially, because I was, I mean, my system and my mind had been so overwhelmed. That's all. I mean, that's all I saw. But going on in underneath it, depression for me comes out of the point where you feel like there's no hope. You can't see a path out. You're stuck here. And that was very much where I was at times. I didn't always make it out the door to get to the therapy session, you know, I and I was lucky that my therapist, you know, all the time said, you know, there are times you're not going to make it. There are times you're not going to be able to get out, out the door. And that's OK. You've got to be all right with that because we're in here for the long haul. And he had to keep me focused on what is it that's going to see you through when it's at its hardest? What's going to push you to come back again? Because you want the therapy room to seem like a safe haven where the bad stuff can come out. But you also associate in your mind as I'm going to walk in through there and it was bloody horrible last time I did it. So now you want me to come back and do it again? And yeah, I mean, it, in the end, it was my daughter. I have something. You've got to pick that something and you've got to hang on to it because that's what's going to push you through when you've got nothing else left. And I hit mm. that point a lot of times during the therapeutic process. Yeah, sure. And then as you get towards the end of that um that three and a half year period does do things start to feel lighter is that quite obvious for you or is that a bit like kind of bambi on ice trying to navigate <laughs> the world with these new um you know with this new this new paul essentially it's being reborn right yeah i mean I couldn't recognize myself anymore um, I was very much a new person but what i what i pictured it in my head you you do bambi on ice i was like trauma and the abuse I'd suffered that was familiar I knew that that was as horrible as it was that was almost felt safe because it was so familiar what I was stepping onto off to it's like I'm on the edge of a cliff and there's just darkness and I've got a foot out there into nothing and I need a leap of faith that this is going to be okay because it's so unknown so scary but as I began to build a different life for myself, think a different way, approach the world in a different way. It did feel lighter, but then the difficulty became, okay, I've got my foot out into the new world, but I've got to let go of this old world. I've got to step off and go, no, it's gone. It's behind me. And actually the most difficult part of that was letting go of the therapy. It had become the pressure valve, it become the release, it become the place where I could truly be me and I could talk without judgment and anything that I was thinking or feeling, I could go there. And more than that, it was the only parental relationship I'd ever known. And imagine, you know, you're leaving home, your parents want you to go, it's a bit scary going out to the world and you want to make them proud and you want to leap off into the unknown. Only the difficulty is when you do it, you never get to see them again. And therein lies the challenge with therapy. 
because you can't become dependent on them. They're not a parent. They're not a friend. They're a therapist. And in order for them to succeed, and I desperately wanted him to be proud of me, my therapist, I had to let go, leap out, and hope that I would never need to go back. And it took quite a while. It really mm. did. Yeah. That's a yeah, really interesting um, analogy. Yeah. There's something, I suppose, there's something really, really scary about that. There's also something, I don't know, kind of like an unspoken thing that's quite nice because, you know, you step away from it and you're doing all right. And he knows that you're out there doing all right. And that sort of, you know, that kind of unspoken, uncommunicated yeah, you know, that's quite nice. It's quite nice yeah. as well as being like horrifically scary, of course. Uh, yeah, and I think um, he was so excellent at that end period. He said, it'll take as long as it takes when you're ready to step off. But he did drop hints. The, I remember the session when he said to me, Paul, you know, every week you come here and all we do is discuss philosophy. Which is a big hint of, I'm not really doing therapy for you anymore, are you? You're just turning up and we're having a chinwag. But I was, he, he then said, you know, I, he said, I, you, I will always be here if you want to come back. You email me, we can, we can set something up. You'll, you won't have to go through a different process. So he, he didn't cut me off entirely. And of course, when I started writing the book, I, I reached out to him and said, could I interview you for the chapters in the book? So I did get to meet up with him again. Yeah. And it was, it was, um, it was emotional. It, it, it was like coming home and he did. he did he dropped me an email and he said because when he read he read the book he said by the way i am proud of you oh, and mate. yeah yeah it was it's quite a thing and it, it, it still gets me now it yeah it really does yeah that's lovely that's really really nice um it's kind of almost a, a form of closure to the whole thing in some way hmm. in some weird weird unusual way yeah so how big was the gap between finishing up and deciding i'm gonna write a book because there's one thing to kind of, you know, mm -hmm. survive all that. And then to think, do you know what? I'm going to go back to the start and I'm going to write it all down. You know, that's a, that's a big leap, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my therapy finished um, sort of midway through or late 2016, even without telling people my complete story, I've got a lot of odd anecdotes. Uh, in fact, I always said on my headstone, I should have the words. There were a series of incidents. Um, so, there I am in 2018, and I've gone to Highgate Cemetery, you know, which famously is where Karl Marx's grave is. And it's a beautiful place for a walk. And next to it, there's a grave from Nuno, Nuno Avizado, who is a uh, political activist, poet, philosopher. And I remember being captured by the words that were on it, which were, I did what I could, let those who can do more. And Lutar continue while the struggle continues. And I took a picture of it and it became my backdrop on Facebook. And I remember posting Instagram meme old school, you know, being on a headstand because that was an old school meme. And then it just sat there and I would keep showing it to people. And clearly part of my head was going that there's something here that's connecting to something. And my challenge always about writing a book was why? The events of my life are not unique. Sadly so. There's nothing special about either my events or me. It is an unfortunate truth. I wish it wasn't that way. And what am I doing? Am I going to write something and go, hey, look how horrible my life was? Excuse my French, but that's trauma porn. 
And I'm sure there are some people who are like, oh, I like to read a really horrible story, but I'm like, well, I'm not really interested. I've got to have a reason to do it. And then I remembered um, um, the book about Billy Connolly by his wife, Pam Stevenson, the psychiatrist, called Billy. And I'd read it, and it was the first time I read something that reflected how I'd felt. I suddenly, it's like I'm not alone. Somebody else has been through this. And I hadn't read anything like that before. And he was brutally honest about what he'd been through in his life. And I'm, yeah, Billy Connolly's always been a big hero of mine. And then I thought, okay, the one downside with these celebrity books about, um, you know, biographies is it's not real. It's not me and you. It, it's not every day. It's not a guy you can imagine that you went to school with or, you know, that you know at work. And suddenly the two things came together. I can write this book because I can. I should do what I can. I want to feel that way, that I did what I could. If I couldn't help one other person who had been through something similar to me, or like my daughter who loved and cared for somebody who had been through these things, and I can make them not feel alone, then that's what I can do. And, you know, I was never going to make money. It's never going to be that famous. But if I could help one, then you go, it's worth it. And then I sat down with my daughter and went, well, what would we have to do to write this book? And this was sort of early 2019. We, we went to stay by the seaside for a weekend. And I said, I've got to go back through all this. So I've done all this healing. I'm going to have to go back, tear off the band-aids, open up the scars, because I'm going to have to feel what I felt back then in order to be able to tell the story in a real way. And I thought, okay, am I able to do that? Because if I can, then the question becomes, how can I not? And so the decision was made midway through 2019. Um, wow. Self and my daughter started writing. I suppose that's the, the ultimate test of recovery, right? If you ever felt the need to test it, you know, you take that leap into the unknown, you sign off from therapy and it's like, well, you know, if all that worked, then, then I'll make it through this, this experience of trawling well, through it again. The thing is, the number of people have said, oh, it must be really cathartic. And I've wanted to throw something heavy at them. Usually there was some swearing involved when they said that. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. This is like, you know, an old wound, a horrific one, and I'm tearing it open. So I can show you how the damage happened and how it then healed. And don't get me wrong. Um, you can, well, you've read, it hit me hard on some places, including one full three days. I was wiped out in full flashback mode. And my daughter was very much concerned of like, are we going to carry on? Because yeah. I've just seen what this has done to you. About yeah. that point, I was three quarters of the way through. So I gritted my teeth and thought, yeah, I swore again got angry at the world and there was no way this is now stopping me i've yeah. got this far oh mate yeah that's heavy that's really heavy but it's such an interesting point because um you know we all want to encourage people to talk right it's good mm. to talk it's okay to talk that's the message and it's an important message people should be encouraged to talk yeah part of that message is not how hard talking is and it doesn't matter what mental illness you're dealing with 
whether you're just saying I want help for the first time or whether you're telling your story or whether you're reaching out, it's hard. It's really hard. Therapy's hard. I've had sessions where I've come home and gone to bed, you know, like it's um, all of this speaking up process is really, really emotionally challenging. And I think that's a really good point to make because when we say to people, speak up, talk about it, ask for help. If they're in it, the first thought is like, well, well, I can't. But if we can get that relatability and acknowledge that, oh, no, it's really, really hard. And then I think maybe it makes it easier for people to, uh, you know, to do that in the first place. I always want people not to underestimate how much it becomes real when you verbalize it. When I first said that I was abused, that um, it was shocking to me. It, 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 you know, I literally blew myself away by what, what was coming out of my own mouth. And for other people, they're sitting there thinking, look, I've got a lid on this Pandora's box. I'm sat on it. I've got a big weight holding all this crap down. And you want me to open it up. Then it's, it's why I wrote an article. I've been writing articles for the Book of Man, um, you know, which is an awesome new men's magazine. And I wrote one called So We Need to Talk. And how terrifying those words were to me when somebody would say, we need to talk. And if you're going to have that conversation with somebody, if you're going to open the door, you've got to give them time. You've got to be gentle. And not only that, be educated and aware enough of what might come out of their mouths. Because I've had, I don't know about you, but I've had personal experience where somebody's opened that door and said, you know, if you want to talk to me, I'm here. And I have. And then I've seen their reaction. And, you know, you can't hide it if somebody's horrified and you're thinking, oh, my God, what have I just done? I didn't expect that to come the other way. So it isn't just enough to go, will you talk? You've got to understand how difficult that is for them. You've got to realize what that's potentially going to do to them and make sure they're ready. Don't push. Allow them to do it at their own speed, at their own level and be educated and aware enough to deal with it when it starts coming your way. You can't do, it'd be like saying to somebody, you know, yeah, yeah, I can do CPR and just starting and then going, eh, actually bit much and then walks away. Now you sort of made a commitment here, pal. (laughs) (laughs) Really want you to see this one through. And it's otherwise it's better not to say a damn thing. And I'm, I'm, I am gravely concerned about the amount that this has now become a degree of virtue signaling. Mm. Um, Talking is everything. It's the start of everything. Talk to somebody in any way, shape or form, even if it's small, the tiniest thing. It's a start because although things like um, certain therapeutic techniques, things like EMDR, medication, all those things can help. Fundamentally speaking, the weapons and tools that we have for dealing with mental ill health is words and thoughts. So it has to start with somebody saying something. Yeah. And I suppose a lot of those other techniques and things like that you mentioned are sort to be designed more as ways of facilitating that conversation and enabling it to happen rather than becoming the crutch so that we yeah. don't need to avoid that conversation. Right. It's all about yeah. getting that, getting that process, getting the ball rolling. And as well, and some more kind of things, more stigma around that is that when people's talking, and I think that this is important to mention when people start talking, things feel very different, but they don't necessarily feel okay straight away, but yeah. you will feel different 
and yes. sometimes feeling different enough, Paul, right? If that, if things have felt a certain way for a long time, then mm. just feeling, you know, a different version of still not great is better yeah. than the, the same old. Well, I say depression so often caused by hopelessness that I don't see a way out of here. Once I start talking inherently, there's a begins to be the light at the end of the tunnel, that there's some way out and it is, just start small, start gentle, support that person. And what I keep telling people when I, when in, um, in our sort of mental health first aid community, be aware of the immense trust this person has just put in you. They have shown you one of the greatest honors in the world. This is the most phenomenally difficult thing to talk about. And they've chosen you and whatever it is they've given you, be aware of that trust, honor the trust that they've just given you. And go from there. And I say to people, you don't need to understand. You don't need to be able to fix anything. Just listen non-judgmentally, because that in of itself is help. And then signpost them to somebody who can really help them. Be non-judgmental. Thank the person for sharing the things that they shared with you. And mean it. Because, mm. wow, they've given you a big honor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I love that about meaning it, you know, because that does get get banded around a little bit, doesn't it? You know, about um, I'll always be there for you or anything you need. My DMs are always open and stuff like that. And I always think if you mm -hmm. say that, you better mean it. You better, you really better yeah. mean it, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, it sounds, is, so this whole like writing the book thing, it sounds really, really, really challenging. And reading it, you, I became really aware of the challenge, not only that you faced to get to the point where you could write it, but also writing it. And that's, I, but that was really relatable though, because some of the um, conversations between you and your daughter as part of the writing process, some of that stuff, if you can find yourself with a, any sort of loved one to be, find that space where you can be that honest and open in, fr in front of each other, that's so important to healing that I, I think. And hmm. it sometimes skipping out on those conversations something from my own past skipping out on maybe some of the more difficult conversations with my wife or you know those sorts of things had a long a, you know a long bigger effect on uh, on my mental health and it was only being able to sit down and really kind of like break down those those walls and be completely honest um yep. so that in itself you know that must have been challenging for for both of you as well paul because i'd imagine that you kind of learned a lot about each other that um maybe you weren't expecting to yeah i mean my daughter said, I thought I knew your story. And clearly, as you can see with some of the particular chapters, there were things that she knew nothing about. And of course, things that affected her life and those that she also cared for. But it, one of the things about, about complex PTSD and anybody who's been abused, you live in a world of lies. It happens all in darkness. So talking is fundamental to your healing, that you can be open about it. And my, my therapist was very clear on that with me. He said, you know, then you are taking control of your own story. And I just think that and that's absolutely fundamental to the healing process. But more than that, my daughter was dealing with her own mental health issues. So if I was to get her to trust me, you have to show trust. You have to show that vulnerability is a strength, that there is a place always that with somebody that you can then talk and it's why I said when I said about the goals of the book at the beginning, that this was also a conversation between me and my daughter. And she and I discussed that this is for 
a loved one supporting somebody with mental health issues so they can read it and they can understand this is the sort of conversations you need to be able to have and you need to be able to be open for. And sometimes they'll shock you and sometimes you'll be horrified. And sometimes there'll be things you're not proud of. Sometimes there'll be self-destructive things and, and secrets and all of those sorts of things. But that became our journey together. And when we both learned and both opened up and both healed from doing it, sort of contradicts my whole thing about it not being cathartic. Um, I mean, it wasn't <laughs> cathartic, but we did learn an awful lot from it. And I wanted people to see that journey. That was as, as important to me as my story itself was the journey that myself and my daughter went yeah. on. And, th and that, that really comes across in the book. And that, that aspect of it is incredibly relatable because you can apply so many aspects of what you talk about in the book and what you write about to any mental illness, to any mental struggle, to any even other types of struggle that aren't mental, you know? So it's like your story is your story, but there's a lot of surrounding factors around that story that can be applied to anyone's yeah. story. And that is really like one of the, I took a lot of things away from it. I very much enjoyed it, but um, that was something I took away, took away from it, you know? Mm. And because it's written like that, I was really rooting for you both, mate. I really <laughs> was rooting for you both. Like I, I needed to know how it finished. I needed to know that, um, you know, you, that what you'd done had worked and you'd got to a certain, certain place, you know, and, and that really comes across in the book, but was it a conscious decision to write, um, break it down into life one and life two, because that's a, well, I will say, but one thing I've, <laughs> I've said about your book Paul, is it reads like fiction partly because of the story, but more in the style of writing is really unusual, but it, hooks people in you completely forget i completely forget forgot that i was reading about an actual person's life if that yeah. makes sense and a lot of it was the way that that story is told and i thought that was brilliant well i mean the the idea of uh, i said to my daughter we're, we're gonna have to be fictional characters because she started off writing it uh, from a passive narrator voice and we read a couple of chapters and went, no this is not gonna work because any story, you have action, colour and emotion. Something that moves the plot on. Enough colour to the story that you can imagine yourself. And emotion, you have to care about the outcome. And you'll note from the beginning when I, you know, cast of characters and all this sort of stuff, that that's how we were going to approach it. The splitting it into life one and life two and telling those two threads in parallel was for a number of reasons. If I told it from the beginning to the end in one row, I don't think you would have got through it. It just goes too dark at some points where you're just saying, I, I, I'm done, you know. And again, Billy Connolly's book um, did a similar sorts of things with flashbacks. But it was also, it came from, again, that headstone. When I was thinking about the book and trying to picture it in my head, because I'm a very sort of visual thinker and i looked at those two lines i did what i could let those who can do more as actually being two lives there was me before therapy before the, the my descent into madness i did what i could i did what i could and what i needed to to survive but now coming out of the other end I have to be able to do more. I, you know, I have to become a, 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 I have to become a bigger person. I have to take on things that I was never able to take on before. I just relied on my defenses. So I actually saw 
in the structure of the story in those headstones. I know that may sound a little bit weird, but you know, we, we went back to the headstone and I sat there trying to get inspiration thinking, how, how am I going to tell this story? It's just too weird. And of course, then the final piece of the puzzle, um, my daughter had um, published some short stories and um, I've always loved her writing. My way of writing is very in your face. Natasha described the first chapter as a cannonball to the face. And <laughs> she quite literally, she, she'd read something I'd written and go, wow, okay, do we want to take some edges off this? And I went, no, because that's me. Said, you, on the other hand, my daughter has a very soft, gentle voice. And she walks alongside you as, as she tells the story. She's, she's accompanying you. And I think that adds into that whole thing of, um, yeah, feeling part of it and rooting for the end. You, you've got, which she addresses directly at the end of the book, that she is your companion during this tale. And uh, she loves every single person who has walked with her. Mm. And yeah, and that, you know, that's exactly how it exactly how it reads, exactly how it reads. It's kind mm. of, um, yeah, just when it starts to get difficult, um, then, yeah, you can feel the book pull back and it gives you a break and it gives you a breather. And it, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really fascinating. It wasn't how what I expected it to read like at all. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, yeah, no, it was a, a great experience. And I'll put all the links and stuff to it. Um, in the episode notes but um, also writing wise because you do a lot of writing now Paul I've seen you on Joe Plum's website uh, Messy yeah. Mind stuff like stuff like that I've read a few of your your articles is that something that helps you to sort of keep ticking over you know keep um, I don't know keep that creative fire burning or keep you processing your thoughts about mental health or well it's two things one the first thing I ever wanted to be the first you know when a child thinks you know I want to be a fireman was a writer that's the first thing I ever remember wanting to be. I'm about sort of seven years old. I was obsessed with reading and, and I loved fiction and that's what I wanted to be. Slight problem, massively dyslexic. Um, so that gives me a whole bunch of issues with regard to that. And suddenly um, I'd worked out over the years how to write. And when I wrote the book, I found that not only was I telling the story, but I was processing things that were going on with me at the time by writing. And I think any form of creative outlet. So I play music as well, which allows you to express emotions in a way that you otherwise potentially have trouble with. And the writing thing allows me to process thoughts. And in, during this time in particular, where we are all feeling so isolated, this was a great way to have those deep conversations you'd have with somebody when you set the world to write. You know, so I wrote an article um, on Christmas Day because I was on Christmas Day all on my own. So I wrote an article called 2020, A Study in Loneliness. And it allowed me to process things, think through things and have an outlet for things. And I want to keep doing it. Um, I enjoy the process. I've even got a, a ideas I'm kicking around and talking with another writer about writing a fiction novel, which will be a whole different sort of experience. So I... I 2020 was the year that I fulfilled a life stream from being a child of becoming a writer and having stuff published, not, not only through the book, um, but also like I say articles. Yeah. So, 
I suppose that's um, getting those things down on paper as well. You know, it is like journaling, isn't it? And journaling something that's hmm. recommended for uh, maintaining good mental health and processing and stuff and stuff like that. So that makes a makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Do you have any other um, practices, Paul, that you use to keep yourself ticking over? Is there anything that you um, you re- rely on? Any little rituals or self care techniques or? Um, I'm very much a creature of habit. Um, now, because of my PTSD, I've always suffered with insomnia. And it was only during my therapy that my therapist said, right, OK, there are very simple things you can do that help improve this. Because sleep is at the heart of all of it, from my point of view. Then you layer on other things like diet, exercise, the other positive things. But if, you don't, if you're not sleep well, you've got a big problem. So I am quite um, religious about what I do around sleep. You know, when I uh, don't take any caffeine after two, always wake up at the same time in the morning, regardless of the day, because that forces the sleep pattern the other way. Um, Always, um, you know, read before I go to sleep. And it's mostly, I suppose, there that um, that keeps me on an even keel. Then the other thing for me is, being around the water um that's my meditation going sailing being around in the water being around nature takes you makes you very aware of your body makes you live in that moment and be very aware of your sensations so we're sailing you're very aware of the wind you're very aware of the feel of the boat any of those things have a lot of the same benefits as meditation or similar so whether it's running it's cycling it's boxing it's you pick something that is your meditation and that for me is is sailing yeah i mean yeah being present in the moment and experiencing those small changes that's sort of the true definition of mindfulness right so yeah, yeah being able to absorb yourself into your version of it is yeah. um is fantastic yeah oh mate um so what's next you mentioned a potentially another book yeah is that is that on the cards um so i wanted to write a second mental health book um the struggle continues is very dark but i wanted to do something about what now you know you've got to this point in recovery where do you go from there um so i've got an idea for a book about that that will combine my love of sailing uh travel and how you maintain it and build a life after it um i've got a title i won't share it just yet um and i've got an outline for a fiction book um which I'm chatting to another writer about maybe I'll do a, a, a partnership with somebody again because I like that process otherwise I became a mental health first aider I'm helping a mental health first aid community at um, the place where I just got a job and I'm still doing workshops um, both on uh, mental well-being um, as well as um, being neuroatypical in the workplace so yeah, I'm definitely, it's, it's a passion of mine. And again, I just keep coming back to the same set of words. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's lovely. I, I always think that the creative process is something that if you're a creative person, you, you have to have that outlet. And if you don't, it is like some sort of energy blockage, right? It is sort of mm. something that can play a factor in, in mental health. Yeah, well, and I think it takes a discipline, you know. It's not just am I a creative person go and do something creative, be creative. You can do it in a structured way. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I hear somebody, oh yeah, I'm not that creative. I think "Mm, you actually, you just haven't found the thing and tried. We are inherently creative beings. 
Yeah, no, very true. Very, very true. Oh, mate, well, despite our uh, our technical issues, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I cannot thank you enough for your uh, for your time, mate, and for your, your openness, your honesty, um, which, you know, I've read the book. I was expecting 100% openness and honesty, and that's exactly what I what I got. And I really, really appreciate it, Paul. I really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to You are more than welcome, sir. Thank you for having me on. No worries. Ta-da now. Bye-bye. You take care. Bye. listening from the proper mental podcast please like and subscribe the space time